Well, we're here walking in the center of Slavyansk. For over a month now, LA Times Middle East Bureau Chief Nabi Bulos has been on the ground in Ukraine, covering the escalating Russian invasion. You can see the preparations for these Molotov cocktails. This here is chunks of styrofoam being put into the bottles because it's a, a good sort of accelerant. Nabi has seen fierce fighting by Ukrainians, nonstop bombardment by Russians, hope and fear and chaos. He's crisscrossed Ukraine to hear residents tell their stories. Stories as her country's situation keeps getting more dire. I'm Gustavo Arellano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. It's Wednesday, March 9th, 2022. Nabi, welcome to The Times. Thank you for having me. We last talked to you about two weeks ago, just as Russia began its invasion. And back then, many thought Ukraine would quickly give up. But instead, Ukrainian resistance has inspired people around the world. How much of what has happened so far surprised you? Well, I mean, the sheer timeline of the invasion has been surprising. There were expectations that Kyiv would fall fairly quickly, that in any case, you would see the Russians being able to take many of these major cities without much of a fight, only because of the gargantuan number of tanks and armored vehicles and all the material they had assembled. That really hasn't been the case, actually. It's been, in that sense, surprising. Granted, there is this big column around Kyiv, and there have been significant advances in the south, and of course in the east as well. But, I mean, there is no fighting inside Kyiv, at least just yet. And that's a significant victory. I mean, basically every day of not losing is essentially winning. So when you first landed in Ukraine, you went to the Donbass region where separatists there have been waging a war for about eight years. What was it like? Well, over there, it was interesting because, I mean, the so-called Donetsk People's Republic and the Luhansk People's Republic, these are the two sort of breakaway enclaves that were taken over by the separatists and, of course, recognized by Russia and really supported by Russia throughout. They had occupied two-thirds of Donbass at that point. And it should be said, I mean, you had this big contact line between the two sides and they would constantly fire at each other. Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov says Moscow is very alarmed by the situation along the line of control in the Donbass region. It wasn't good on the contact line on both sides, just in the sense that you had just such horrific destruction, you know, because of the constant shelling, etc. Things calmed down at some point, but it was still what you would call a frozen conflict. And that was reflected in the streets, like you'd be driving around at some point and you just take a turn and boom, the road ends, right? Or there's an area where you just cannot go because it's separatist control. Also, this was an area that was really vibrant economically. I mean, the Donbass region, you know, is famous for the coal works and, and that then grew into other industries. And of course, the place is dotted with these sprawling projects, these big thermal plants, etc. And now, I mean, sadly, it's been mostly denuded of that economic activity. It's just much, much worse because of the war, obviously. So these provinces have been staging warfare for the past eight years. Who did you talk to out there and what did they say about what they've experienced so far? Well, so I spoke to this one pensioner who actually was sitting there filling up water jugs. This was the day after this power station was knocked out briefly and they didn't have electricity or water. And so the pumps wouldn't work. Her name was Sanya Nikolaevna. And she basically was sitting with her husband and they were in front of this pump. And we're talking about a really like old style pump with a lever being pulled up and down so you could actually get water out of a well. 
And I mean, she only had good memories about Luhansk, right? This was in a place called Chastya, which means happiness. You know, the town's name is happiness. And I imagine it must have been back in the day because it had this big, like, sprawling project there as well. And it attracted all these people to come and work and sort of the town, you know, was built around this. Now, of course, things had changed. You're talking about a town that had lost so many of its young people because they simply couldn't find economic opportunity. And so it was left to people like Kanye to stay there and sort of just keep house and try to live their lives as best that they could, knowing that, that the area wasn't anywhere what it used to be for them. And of course, it should be said that Ukraine economically is very different in terms of people being able to afford things, right? I mean, I mean, this is a, you know still a poor country. And that was reflected in Tanya, really, in her situation. For her to move would have been, frankly, financially impossible. And in many ways, I have to say, for someone like her, she probably would prefer to be under one administration at that point, where her area isn't divided, you know, among rival administrations. We'll be right back. Before the break, Nabi, you were telling us about your reporting in Donbass. And the next place you visited was Kharkiv, Ukraine's second largest city. You hear a lot about Ukrainian nationalism, but a lot of the people there that you talk to, they thought Russia was going to be easy on Kharkiv. Why? Well, Kharkiv, of course, is quite close to the border with Russia, right? I mean, I mean, we actually went to the train station that was only really just two kilometers away from the Russian border. And back in the day, this train station would have been full of people just going, you know, on trains, 15 trains each way. Now there weren't any passenger trains and, and you barely had cargo trains, which just indicates the, you know, the level of the fall here. I'm standing here in one of Kharkiv's neighborhoods in Ukraine. And Kharkiv, one should note, is Ukraine's second largest city. We're talking about a place with 1.1 million people approximately. And I mean, this is a weekday around what should be rush hour traffic. And there is just, it's pretty, it's pretty desolate at the moment. What you do see, however, are lots of people cramming themselves into the subway stations, which obviously double as bomb shelters in case of shelling. Um, but for the moment, I mean, I've said this a lot today, but it's still true. It's very unclear what's going to happen. Uh, there are reports that uh, Russian troops have actually shut off the exits out of the city. Although we have also heard of people being able to go by car west at this point. Um, we still don't know, but we're keeping watch. And, you know, for these people, they have relatives in Russia, right? They're all, you know, very close. And of course, most of them are ethnically Russian. They speak Russian as a first language, right? They're perhaps a bit uncomfortable with Ukraine. And it should be you know, said that even back in the day in 2014, when the war first started over the East, there was actually an expectation that people would be able to separate Kharkiv as well and make it into a Kharkiv People's Republic. That actually was a theory at the time. It didn't happen for various reasons, but it was expected. So what's the situation like there now in Kharkiv? Unfortunately, it hasn't been spared anything. I mean, you're talking about, you know, some of the most dramatic footage coming out now is from those areas where you see a missile slamming into this really elegant central square. Shellings pounded Ukraine's second largest city again, with footage showing a massive explosion outside a Soviet-era regional administrative building. You see these old buildings damaged, shelling, etc. Ukraine's government claims the attacks deliberately target residential areas in an attempt to force Ukraine's embattled president into making concessions in peace talks. Well, a lot of people in these shelters here, um, 
obviously this is a metro, but it doubles as a bomb shelter, clearly. People have died in the dozens and they are wounded. Videos posted on social media networks show the extensive damage inside the building with emergency service workers combing through the wreckage. So we heard some bombings before, but now, now there's nothing. And again, that's been the rhythm of this conflict so far, at least in Kharkiv. Moments of intense bombing and then nothing. We're in the nothing phase, luckily. And it should be said that you have all these students as well, you know, you know, all these Indian students that I met there, you know, they're trying to escape and they're stuck. I actually just heard now about a number of Jordanians as well. It's really quite shocking what's been happening there, right? And I don't say this because it's Europe and I don't say this because it's like, how is it possible that there's a war in Europe at this point? No, it's not about that. This was just a very normal city in that sense, you know, for quite some time. And... For people there who felt really close to Russia in many ways, who actually lamented the loss of the relationship with Russia, this came as a big surprise. What did the people that you talked to there in that city tell you about the invasion and how they're surviving it? I mean, the people that I knew mostly there have left, I have to say, because simply it was untenable and they have families. This one person I spoke to, you know, his name is Sasha Alexander. He basically felt that he wasn't any good at fighting, but he was going to basically make sure he could deliver his family to somewhere safe and then come back and help in whatever way he could. But, uh, you know, for him to stay in Kharkiv, he simply couldn't do it. He had stayed in shelter for, you know, almost a week at that point, And it just seemed it was going to get worse and worse. And indeed, I think he was right to move, actually. You also mentioned in your story that when Sasha was going through checkpoints, he spoke Ukrainian, even though he felt less comfortable with it than speaking Russian. So is language a big tension point in the region right now? Of course. I mean, it's become kind of a marker of whether you're a friend or foe. I mean, this is one of the sort of sore points over in the East, right? That these people, you know, speak ethnically Russian. They didn't really feel the need to be forced to speak Ukrainian. And there were laws to that effect that were, I think, very, very problematic for a lot of people. Of course, now that's changing. The fact is people, you know, really resent what's been happening, right? They resent uh, this Russian invasion. And of course, it should be said, too, that now there is, unfortunately, a strong anti-Russian fervor. And that means that if you speak Russian, you're going to be, of course, looked at as scans. You're going to have some problems. Even if it's easier for you to speak Russian, it would be easier to speak Ukrainian at this point. Kharkiv is around six hours east of Kiev. So you're driving back to the capital. How was that drive back there for you? What roads did you take? What did you see along the way? Oh, it took us ages. We were about to leave to go to Kiev and see what was happening there. But, of course, there was worry that there would be these blocked roads and there was a question of how fast the Russians would be moving. And as it stood, we managed to make it out. But by the time we got to Kiev, it was very dark. And along the way, you would pass really just, just these, these towns, you know, with not many people there. The transit towns had a few cars sort of having coffee, etc., and filling up on gas and then racing through. And you would, of course, see hints of the battle. You would see, you know, checkpoints being added, of course. And you would see the occasional truck on fire or the carcass of a tank somewhere. It was in that sense eerie, I have to say, because it was mostly empty, but you would see signs of almost like a battle that happened a long time ago. There were cars on the road, of course, and those cars were, were mostly zooming past. And especially in Kyiv, you would see this. Kyiv, you know, this is a full, happy city usually, right? It has a lot of life. And at this point, you know, we're talking about a time when there were just only a few cars and they're zooming, zooming through, right, going as fast as they could. It was, I have to say, disconcerting because we wanted to get there before curfew, right? This, this was a big issue for us, right? Now there's a curfew 
And to be there after dark, to be there after curfew, is perhaps to be considered an enemy. And there are, frankly, so many people now on the streets with guns who are residents turned reservists, in the sense that now they serve a security function. So you want to be careful not to freak anyone out, especially if they're inexperienced with a gun. About 60 kilometers outside of Kyiv, you stopped in a village. How was the war playing out there? So this was near a place called Makarev. It was near the highway there. And over there, I mean, we've been seeing just horrific scenes of war. And this is, again, a strange situation where you saw just a few Russian vehicles coming through. And, and this happened a few hours before we actually came upon this checkpoint. And you just see carcass of what must have been a huge battle, right? You saw basically this car. And this was a normal civilian car I discovered later on that must have hit a mine or, or had received a shell. You know, whatever it was, it had blown up into little chunks. I mean, I hate to sound so gruesome, but it also scattered the bodies of the people inside it. There were four, as far as I could tell, and they had scattered in all directions. Oh, shit. We saw one in the field. We saw one beside the car, what was left of him. We saw another one to the left, another one far forward, you know, who was burnt. And in fact, as you went along that highway, you saw more of that. And a bit forward, we saw actually a, a logistics truck that had been burned, and there was, unfortunately, another corpse beside it. And then... Near that as well, there was an APC with the same situation. And you could tell this was a brutal, brutal fight. You know, perhaps these Russian units with better armament and basically just being surprised, right, being panicked and racing into an ambush of Ukrainian forces who then basically just fired everything they could on them. It was really quite gruesome in that regard. But this gives you an example of what's been happening nearby Kyiv, right? This is all about the fight for Kyiv at this point. And basically... The fight in the villages, it's vicious now because it's all about buying more time for the capital. The people in Makarev, what did they tell you? I mean, they were very jumpy, right? They were very afraid. You saw that for a lot of them, I mean, the fighters were there. Yes, they had managed to push back the Russians into the forest outside Makarev. But there was artillery all around them and there was real fear that this was only a matter of time before the Russians go in. In fact, I heard a few hours ago, actually, that Makarev might now have fallen to the Russians, in fact. And so, yeah, I mean, it just, this just gives you a sense of how desperate the fight has been. I remember this one person named Julia, you know, this teacher, and she was there with her husband who was part of the Territorial Defense Force, this sort of people's army that had, that had risen up. I mean, she was terrified, you know, she didn't have kids, she could have left in theory, but she just felt there wasn't any time now to do so, it was too late. All of this fighting you're seeing all on the road to Kyiv itself. Here's the key. Both Russia and Ukraine claim the city as the birthplace of their modern and respective nations. So how do you see that desire to claim Kyiv play out in this war? Well, this is actually the big question. You know, what is the plan for Kyiv, right? Can you imagine, you know, the Russian army going in and just smashing, you know, what's considered to be the birthplace of the Russian nation It's a, or, or the Slavic Brotherhood, quote unquote? This is an open question. We don't know. We can see already that, that there have been civilian casualties in the fight outside of Kyiv. And there, I can tell you from personal experience that there was a lot of artillery and a lot of it was Russian from what I could tell. And it hit plenty of, of civilian buildings. What you're hearing there are sirens. So we're expecting a lively night, unfortunately, in Kyiv. Here's hoping everyone is safe. This apartment here is not as destroyed as the others. Just gives you a sense of how normal this must have been until the moment of the impact. 
the ones under are completely ruined. This one here still has some sense of being salvageable. Well, to an extent, anyway. Well, I guess over here, though. Meanwhile, Russian forces are picking off things in Kyiv, like they bombed the main television tower there. How are Ukrainians getting information and news about what's happening? Well, the tower, fortunately, wasn't that big of a problem. I mean, they managed to actually get back up and transmitting quite soon thereafter. Of course, you know, there's also social media. I mean, Ukrainians use Telegram and Facebook a lot. And in fact, most of the official communication, you know, from these various cities is done via Facebook. And so that's been, you know, one way to get the word out. Of course, it should be said, there's been a tremendous focus. In fact, just as I'm speaking, you know, you know, I know that there are a few more journalists coming in as we speak to Kyiv. So there is definitely a tension. I'm not sure how much of it is filtering back in Russia. I'm not sure how much of Russian sort of understanding is being filtered out to us either. I mean, this, this is a media war and it's becoming a very harsh one, I have to say. Is there that fear among Ukrainians that the internet would go down? Now, Arapin is basically between Russian and Ukrainian forces. You know, there's a big fight brewing there. And we had approached an area where before we had 4G service, you know, now there was nothing, which is to say that the war basically is going to damage communications and it'll be harder and harder to get the word out. Another thing I'm curious about are these reports that we're reading about how people across the world, they're booking Airbnbs in Ukrainian cities, buying stuff on Etsy, basically making purchases to try and get money directly into the hands of Ukrainians. How are people in the battle zones getting food and other supplies? I mean, if you go to the south in these areas, things are you know harder because these cities are now besieged by the Russian forces in many cases. Kyiv for now is fine for the most part. Again, this hasn't changed tremendously for people in Kyiv in terms of access to food. I mean, yes, there are shortages, but they are not as dire as you may think inside Kyiv. That's going to be changing. Right now, we see the Russians approaching, and, and in those areas where they've approached, already there are food shortages. Already there are problems of electricity and heat, etc. And this will be you know, continuing, unfortunately. When you first came in, you mentioned that there was like this calm, that there was right before the invasion, people were still going to hipster bars, drinking, generally okay. But how's the city feeling right now? It's very different, of course. I mean, there's a curfew for one thing, so that's changed everything. Now it's 10 o'clock, you know, by 8 o'clock, people are, of course, indoors. You don't see any traffic or you see very rarely any traffic. It's just very different. Everything is shuttered. Yes, there are grocery stores. Yes, there are gas stations. Yes, there's electricity. Yes, there is heating. It's unclear for how long any of this will last. And it feels like it's a slow motion tsunami approaching. I mean, the cliche is, of course, that it's calmest in the eye of the storm. And Kyiv, of course, has been very much the eye of this whole geopolitical fracas that's been going on. And it's been interesting to see how, just as it's been calmest, I think, before the invasion began, it's still the calmest now. The fight hasn't come into Kyiv centers yet. It might come soon, probably in a few days, if not even tomorrow. More after the break. Nabi, you've now been in Ukraine since early February, and you've told us right now some of the stories of the Ukrainians that you've met this past month. 
How far do you expect their resolve to hold on? I expect that this is going to become an insurgency situation. Just as we saw in Iraq, an American army was able to sort of take over the country fairly quickly. But of course, it got bogged down in a massive insurgency. And of course, when you talk about the Russian army or you harken back to its Soviet origins, you're talking about Afghanistan. And I expect to see the same situation here, where you have a very powerful insurgent force ready to go. This is already, in a sense, happening. In the months before this situation, the US, the UK, and now European countries were setting a pipeline of anti-tank missiles and anti-aircraft missiles, etc. And so this pipeline is functioning, right? We're seeing this now playing out as we speak. And so I think if it becomes a situation where Russia tries to take over the entirety of the country or topples the government and you have a full-on insurgency, then it's going to become a very, very tough fight indeed. And finally, Nabiya, a personal question for you. You're the LA Times Middle East Bureau Chief, but you covered the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan just this past summer, and now you're covering Ukraine. How do you cope with all the violence and the heartbreak that you endure as part of your job? It's hard to say that I cope. I mean, people always sort of have a point where sort of it gets to them. And I try my best to sort of empathize as much as I can and still realize, of course, that these people, you know, obviously they have a far different situation than I do. And the fact is, it should be said that I have the privilege of being able to go out. I mean, I can, in theory, still leave now tomorrow, right? So my situation isn't anywhere near as difficult as the people who are stuck here. With that being said, I mean, the violence that you see, the horrific stuff, and for me, of course, it makes me very angry. It makes me very sad. But I have to say, with this situation, it has perhaps made me angrier than in the past just to see the difference in perception and the difference really in empathy. Just looking at how... People have been reacting with the situation in Ukraine versus how they reacted in Iraq, Syria, and Palestinian territories, etc. This has actually sparked a real conversation in the Middle East. And it's been one that I think people have realized that there is a real difference in treatment. And you see this even now in Ukraine with all these darker skinned people, you know, facing racism, even at the border now when they're trying to stay for their lives. Nabi. Thank you so much for taking the time with us and stay safe. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow, a family gives up suburbia for life on the American roads. Shannon Lynn was a hef on this episode, and our show is produced by Denise Guerra, Kasha Brasalian, Ashley Brown, Angel Carreras, and Shannon Lynn. Our engineer is Mario Diaz, our editor is Kinsey Morgan. Our executive producers are Hasmin Aguilera and Shawnee Hilton, and our theme music is by Andrew Eatman. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow The Times on whatever platform you use. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news in this madre. Gracias. Gracias.